Lee and Brad here with another episode of Close. We are really excited to have with us Susanna Cavanaugh. She's a reporter for The Real Deal, um, and she's written about a number of really interesting, relevant topics recently, and we're going to talk to her about a couple of them today. But first, Susanna, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, in the news, uh, in the New York City, in the entire real estate market, but specifically in New York City, was the was the failure of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the main reasons why we wanted to have you on was an article that you recently wrote um, titled "Signature Collapse May Sound Death Knell for Rent Stabilized Properties." Um, you know, uh, certainly a topic that caught my eye when I was reading the Real Deal that day. So um, I guess let's start with. For those, for those who don't know, what is a rent-stabilized property and why are uh, larger banks skeptical of working uh, with those types of properties? Sure, yeah. So a rent-stabilized property unique to New York is a property in which the rents are capped. So they're based on this annual increase that the Rent Guidelines Board uh, votes on every year. So that's Compared to a market rate property where the rent reflects the, um, you know, whatever the market will bear. The issue with rent stabilized properties is there is this set of laws that went into effect in 2019. We refer to them as the 2019 rent law, but, you know, the real name is the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. And what they did is they made it exceptionally difficult for landlords to raise the rent on these rent-stabilized properties beyond what the Rent Guidelines Board allows. So pre-2019, owners, for example, they could um, put into the apartment like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of renovations, and then they could recoup that money um, through a rent increase. But the rent law basically did away with all those avenues owners had to raise rents, so it restricted their revenue flow. The reason banks are kind of skeptical of these properties now, I guess we could say, is because the rent law, because it restricted revenue flows, it it cut the valuations of these properties by 20 to 65%. So the mortgages on these properties, the loans on these properties, um, they now don't have the valuations that they did when the loans were made. Um, so the LTV is much higher and that leads to distress. And we're just starting to see that crop up among rent-stabilized sta- rent buildings. Um, but the thought is, once the, once the current interest rates in the, in the market, so interest rates have gone up four percentage points in the past year or so. So once these loans refinance and the owners deal with those higher interest rates, then the properties are like absolutely going to be underwater. Right. So why... Uh, you know, why were more regional banks like Signature Bank willing to lend on properties, uh, rent stabilized properties where the bigger banks were not? Yeah. So regional banks are like in my reporting, what I've found is they just they're very much client based. They're based on relationships. And prior to 2019, rent rent stabilized properties could be a good bet. Part of that is kind of like part of that is tricky because some banks um, 
bet, you know, made loans to these properties on the idea that the rents would go up beyond what was legal because there are avenues to deregulate units um, and then you could get a market rate rent. Some landlords push tenants out. So the rent law like did a really good job in stopping that sort of predatory behavior. Um, but the regional banks, it's funny, like I was looking into this recently and the New York Department of Financial Services actually sent a memo out to these banks in like 2018 saying, you know, watch out that you're not making these loans to landlords on the thought that they're going to be able to pull, you know, bigger mm-hmm. revenue from the buildings than, than they should. So don't underwrite those loans. It's thought that some of those banks did. Um, but anyway, the regional banks were sort of the go-to for these buildings because they had been for years. Um, And the bigger banks, it's thought now that when owners are looking to refinance, they're just not going to want to take on these loans because they know that they, you know, that the properties are underwater, that the loans may be bad. Like I was talking to one landlord who was trying to refinance a property in which the revenue was not robust enough to cover debt service. And she went to a bigger bank, I think it was like JP Morgan or one of those. And they just said, no, like we're not going to refinance this loan for you because why would we? It's like a troubled loan. We don't want to take this on. Susanna, could you tell us a little bit about, I I think you made a comment that some of these regional banks were kind of of the view that eventually these properties would uh, would have an enhanced value because the owners of the rent-stabilized buildings could deregulate them or, or sort of invest and eventually kind of squeeze more profit out of the building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about, you know, what did those loans look like? Were banks lending at very low rates, you know, uh, with the expectation that there would be refinances happening? Are there other practices that banks were engaged in I guess for these pre two thousand, this pre two thousand nineteen period, um, you know, when, when they were prior to this law, when the banks were were hoping that these owners could get more out of the of the uh, of the properties. Yeah, my sense of it. We're actually putting a story out in the next couple of days that touches on this, but my sense is that the banks were making these high LTV loans. So like whereas a typical loan would be for a multifamily property might be between 50 to 65% LTV, they were lending, so loan to value ratio, ratio, they were lending at like 128% loan to value ratio. So like more loan than value. And the idea was the value would rise um, so that owner would be able to pay back the loan. And we saw that with landlords who are known to be predatory, like Rafael Toledano, um, you know, got in trouble for bullying tenants out of apartments. He got my, my former landlord. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Small world. Um, did you experience any of that? I think I'm under an NDA. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no. Uh, at the time when he, when, when he was my landlord, I was actually working for the AG's office. So he was not going to be engaging in tenant harassment with my particular unit. But I can't speak for what else was going on in my building. Got it. Got it. But yeah, so like characters like that who, you know, got in trouble down the line. So if just to clarify, essentially, in some of these cases, banks were lending, banks were issuing loans where 
the loan, the, the, the amount loaned was greater than the value of the property at that moment in time. And so essentially the banks were saying, okay, we're fine with this. We know that you're going to deregulate. You're going to squeeze more money out of this building. So, you know, I guess in a couple of years, if we ever have to take our asset back, we won't be underwater anymore, but we are right now. Yeah, that's that's the idea. And it's kind of like tricky grounds because when I was looking into this, you know, it was funny, DFS, um, like sent this memo out in 2018 and it didn't name names, but then right after it came out, Signature and New York Community Bank, which are the top two lenders to rent stabilized multifamily, made these commitments saying, you know, we're we're very down with responsible underwriting and we won't make loans based on like future projections of what revenue may be. So, you know, you can kind of put the pieces together. And were there any... Um... If, if you're aware, you know, were those loans compliant with laws and regulations governing lending at the time? I mean, in other words, at least pre-2019, could, was it okay for a bank to do that? Or was that sort of a, a, a practice that, you know, wasn't really getting much sunlight on it at the time, you know, lending 128% loan to value? We we, yeah, we, we didn't we, we didn't prepare you for the for dive the Byzantine <laughs> world of, of lending practices. So to the extent that you that you can answer. No, no, it's fine. It yeah. Up. Um yeah, I mean I I can't speak to that with like a very in-depth um level of knowledge, but like my sense is, you know, it it did fly. Um and it was it wasn't as if like the regular the regulators came in and said what's going on? You can't do this. This is illegal, blah, blah, blah. They were just like, look, we're concerned that you're making these loans and then the landlords are harassing tenants. So they were approaching it from that perspective, not a legal perspective. And, and they weren't really considering the other piece, which which was these were bets that looked like good bets because there were all these mechanisms in place to destabilize a unit. Even if there wasn't harassment, there was buyouts or there were, mm -hmm. uh, I think you touched on, uh, individual apartment improvements or major capital improvements. I don't think anyone was, or at least the landlords weren't counting on such sweeping legislation that would eradicate so many paths to destabilization. So there was like a, I don't know, one in a hundred chance of, that, that these bets went bad and that one hit and it had a, a swooping impact. No, completely. It's like they got so many people got blindsided and then you saw these foreclosures like right away of the landlords that were more predatory. So like Isaac Kassir of Emerald Equities, he faced a lot of that because he had bought up all these buildings right before the rent law changed, like allegedly with the intent of pushing tenants out. And then other folks, you know, it's been happening more gradually, like Sugar Hill has faced a lot of um, a lot of foreclosures recently. So. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we kind of we touched on this, but um, why do, things were already bad for rent stabilized owners prior to Signature and SVB collapsing, right? So mm -hmm. why did the collapse in uh, in the words of your of your headline sound a death knell? What what's the um, What's the glacial change that it signaled for owners of rent stabilized property? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so before Signature fell, it was like we knew that these buildings 
weren't doing well. In January, I reported this piece about distress just starting to crop up because it takes a while, you know. But the thought was once signature collapsed, these loans would have to sell to someone and people would need to look at the underlying value there. Whereas before the sense was that signature was either doing some tricky accounting to make it seem as though the loans were not distressed. Like we have there, um, we have uh, a report that they sent to the FDIC in 2022 that says like, 0.42% of their multifamily loans were behind on payments. So like just a smidge. Um, once Signature went under, it threw into, we knew that these loans were going to be sold and whoever would buy these loans, the idea was that they would have to mark them to market. So reveal the actual valuation of what the loans were. Um, and the thought before was that Signature had either been using like tricky accounting tricks tricky accounting to not show how distressed some of these properties were. Like we know that they are because I reported a piece back in January where, um, you know, like brokers and owners were saying like these landlords are having trouble making their debt payments. Um, And then the other idea is why that distress wasn't quite showing up on signatures books yet is because owners may be pooling from properties that are performing. So like, if I own a rent stabilized building, like maybe I have one that's 75% rent stabilized and it's not doing well, but maybe I also own a market rate building and that's doing fine. So I can sort of like bring it over to keep that, um, that property above water. So yeah, the, the issue is like once they sold, it would reveal kind of what was going on there. And then the other banks that own these loans would also have to sort of mark those loans to market and it may plunge those properties into distress sooner. Like, the owners might not be able to, um, it would just sort of like shed a light on what was actually happening to the sector. So what is the, you know, what's the short-term outcome here? Is it a, a avalanche of foreclosures? I, you know, I know that you've spoken about um, the, the the rent reset bill that's being introduced or it's going to be mm-hmm. introduced. So is it is it legislative? Is it a combination of those things? Are we going to see some foreclosures that might ultimately force the state to act? What do you, I know you can't tell the future, but what do you think uh, is is likely to happen in the the short term for these properties? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, we do know, so we didn't really talk about this too much yet, but we know that when signatures loans Some of them sold to New York Community Bank, but New York Community Bank did not buy the CRE loans because the idea is that those loans were toxic. So the FDIC is looking for another suitor, you know, to buy those loans. And we're not sure who they're going to go to. They could go to a firm that might be more aggressive in foreclosing. That would definitely be a problem for the sector. They could, but it seems as though the FDIC is taking that into account. Like they sent out a memo. Um, earlier this week saying we're going to consult with state state and city government to ensure that these loans go to a responsible buyer because they don't want they don't want that obviously like the city doesn't want a wave of foreclosures that would be bad and the other thing is like it would be a hit to property taxes which we also don't want so they could it kind of depends on like who the loans go to if they go to a a friendly buyer who's willing to do workouts like i talked to one um investor who was saying you know if they go to a hedge fund who buys the loans on 80 cents buys the loans for 80 cents on the dollar and then offers these 
owners a repayment plan where they would pay back the loan at 90 cents on the dollar over a set period of time, maybe that would help these owners get out of trouble. But to your point, like there is sort of a longer term issue here where because that revenue is capped, like the problem with repayment will persist. Um, so the the rent reset bill you talked about, it's not quite a bill yet. It's more so an idea put forth by the Community Housing Improvement Program, CHIP, which is a landlord advocacy group. And what it would do is when a tenant vacated an apartment, it would allow the landlord to raise the rent to either a market rate or some percentage of the area rents. Um, The apartment would still be stabilized, but the thought is that revenue boost would let the owner um, be able to make improvements if they need to or be able to afford their debt service coverage. So um, yeah, among landlords, the hope, and it's funny because some, I've heard that some are buying these rent stabilized buildings on the like very slim hope that the legislature will change these laws in some way. There doesn't seem to be any sign of that. If anything, it seems like Albany, um, you know, they want to make restrictions, tenant protections even more robust. But, you know, landlords, I've heard a lot of them say, like, eventually the pendulum will have to swing the other way. So we will see. It's interesting you say that because, you know, we get calls from both landlords and tenants. And on the landlords, landlord, you know, potential landlords who are interested in buying rent-stabilized property and inquiring what their path to destabilization is, and the answer mm-hmm. usually is very narrow, very yeah. slim. And and tenants who are still getting approached by landlords for buyouts, and unless those landlords are looking to convert to condo or co-op or demoing the building, which usually they're not, right. um, they're probably looking to do something that's illegal uh, <laughs> with the building. Yeah. So I think, but I think on both sides, we're seeing... Um, I guess kind of still a lot of misinformation at, or, or, or uneducation with respect to the current state of the law. A lot of people are still kind of living in this pre-2019 world, maybe even running their buildings in this pre-2019 world. So you can see how that misinformation maybe bled into the banking sector a little bit hmm. and the decision-making that was going on. Um, and I wonder if that's part of what happened. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really heard that before that people are kind of or owners may be a little bit like deluded about you know what's going on with the uh how the laws have affected like what they can do with their buildings but yeah I mean that makes sense that there could have been I don't know I mean I keep hearing like when I've been reporting on the banking sector this idea of like extend and pretend and I feel like it seemed like the sentiment is like if you can like kick the can in any way and not deal with um, you know, like the current restrictions, like why not go for that? Yeah, I guess I, delusion is more, I don't know if delusion is the right word, maybe I misspoke. I think more um, owners who are waiting into the space for the first or second or third time or who, who, or who did it previously and were able to destabilize the building prior to 2019 haven't come to grips with the new reality of what's going on here. And others who have come to grips with it are looking for let's call them creative paths to profitability, which don't always work out. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I just wonder if some of that kind of influenced banking decisions for, for 
more aggressive lenders. But it's a, it's a theory that I guess I probably will never touch that. Um, you know, I am curious. Uh, we touched on this very briefly. I am curious your thoughts on potential legislation. I mean, what are you hearing? Is 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 the the rent reset um, bill or some variation of it uh, a possibility in the near term? I mean, obviously. The state is becoming a little more conservative on the whole, right? Mm. So, you know, is there um, medium term a medium term solution that uh, might kind of swing the pendulum back a little bit, or do you think it's going to be very difficult to unring the bell that was sound in 2019? I mean, my sense is that it's going to be hard. I feel like you know, my editor. Um, Eric Enquist, he's reported on New York politics for decades. And his sense is the same, where it's like this legislation was so sweeping and this, the legislature is still like very progressive and they don't want to unwind this like huge win that they clocked in 2019. Um, but I do think if like we're seeing – these properties, like the problems with these properties start to play out and we're seeing foreclosures and we're seeing, um, you know, at this point, it's funny because talking to lawyers um, who work in the space, they were saying like, they think that the lawmakers, like (laughs) to go back to diluted, like they are not, they're sort of like ignoring the facts of why these buildings are underperforming, why owners are keeping, um, we haven't talked about this too much, but there's an estimated 60,000 units that are being kept vacant because the owners claim they don't have enough money um, to sink into renovations because in the rent stabilized market, you know, you are, you get automatic lease renewals for the entire time you're in the apartment. And then there's succession rights. Like you can pass it on to somebody. So some of these people have lived in these apartments for like decades, their entire life. um, And they only become vacant like a lot of the time when the person dies. So landlords are saying like, when we go in there, these apartments need tens of thousands of dollars um, of investment to be able to put them back on the market. And the lawmakers are saying like, you're making up these, those numbers, like they don't need that much, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, the landlords are like, no, this is what we need to be able to rent our units and stay afloat. So I feel like there needs to be some sort of meeting of the minds where the more progressive lawmakers aren't like gaslighting, I suppose, these landlords about, um, you know, what their revenue streams are and their ability to make it by. So, Susanna, there's one other topic that you've written on recently for the real deal that we wanted to spend a few minutes discussing with you while we can. And that is the um, recent Southern District of New York ruling, finding that the city's uh, COVID guarantee law was unconstitutional. I think that was a little less than a week ago. So it's still, I guess, kind of hot news. And we're wondering if you could just kind of give us an overview on what is, or I guess, what was the guarantee law and sort of what's the what's the legal battle that's played out there? Yeah, this was funny. It was like a Friday at four o'clock news drop and it predated my time at TRD. So I had to orient myself very quickly. I'll tell but... you why, by the way, inside baseball, why uh-huh. it came on March 31st is that federal judges have a congressionally 
there, there's a, there's a congressional oversight mechanism that kind of is a gentle nudge for federal judges to decide their motions. Oh, okay. Um, it's called the six month list. I, I knew that because I worked one of my first jobs at a law school was working for a federal judge as a law clerk. And essentially twice a year, they publish what's called the six month list. And no one in the general public reads it, but it's a, it's a very long PDF document that a congressional oversight off. I think it's the office of the administrative office of us courts or something like that. Mm-hmm. All undecided motions that have been pending for more than six months show up on that. So yeah. I'm about 99.8% sure that's why this is on March 31st. That's interesting. I think we should have a special music that pops up when you do your inside baseball segment. Brad. No, it's so good. Everybody, love- everybody, every, everybody knows to sign off for the podcast at that point in time. <laughs> you know, we may have to edit that piece out, but uh, that's that was- I love the context. I mean, it reminds, it's like cops having a quota at the end of the month or something. It reminds me of that. So, all um, right, so Friday afternoon, March 30, which, all right, by the way, was my birthday while we're on the topic of- Oh, birth, happy birthday. <laughs> information. So- Back to that. So this this decision comes out um, four o'clock on a Friday. Tell us a little bit about the the the, the legal case. Yeah, sure. Um, so back in 2020, the city passed this law that said if a tenant, a commercial tenant, couldn't pay their landlord because COVID had killed their business, as we all remember that happened, um, and they defaulted, they weren't able to pay their rent. And they had a personal guarantee in their lease. The landlord could not exercise that guarantee and like take their personal assets. So he couldn't go in and take their money or, um, you know, like if their if their money was tied up in real estate, couldn't go after that. Um, and landlords, you know, they fought this. They they filed a case against it. Um, and the first judge who looked at it said seemed to say that this was that this was okay um that okay sorry let me go back a little bit so the idea the landlords that fought it fought it on the idea that the it was unconstitutional this guarantee law was unconstitutional because of the contract clause in the constitution which says that governments cannot interfere with private contracts um, and the first judge who looked at it said, you know, the government might be able to interfere with private contracts if it serves the public good. And like this was an issue with COVID and maybe that would apply. So then but the landlords appealed. They initially they lost that case. The landlords appealed um, and the appellate court said, OK, but we need to know why this would serve the serve the public. So they, I think they listed like five reasons that they asked the city to um, sort of answer, like, like, how does it serve it in this capacity and that capacity? And this decision, um, you know, it said that the city was not able to do that because the landlords won the case, the court determined that the guarantee law was unconstitutional and threw it out. So now my understanding is that any commercial landlord with a tenant who did not pay and has a personal guarantee in their lease, can that landlord can now go after that commercial tenant's assets. Um, so landlords definitely found it to be a big win. We'll have to see how that plays out in real time, though. Right. And I think it's still, I guess it's only six days ago this came out. So it's probably, unless you've seen otherwise, we haven't, as, as attorneys that represent a lot of uh, parties to commercial leases. We haven't quite seen things start to shake out yet. 
Um, mm-hmm. have, you, have you heard any further discussion on this or, or maybe it's even too soon to see, will there be a, you know, some people are saying, well, there are going to be a wave of lawsuits now against personal guarantors that were previously protected. Is your experience similar to ours? I mean, is it still too, it's just, it's still too early after this decision to see kind of what comes next, or have you started to see things even in the first week start to, to percolate up a little bit? My sense is it's still early days. I haven't come across anything quite yet, but it's something I definitely, um, you know, want to keep an eye on. I think it's interesting too, because, you know, a lot of these, it's funny, like we haven't focused, retail was hit hard during the pandemic and we haven't focused on it too much lately, but I'm curious, you know, these, these multifamily buildings with retail anchor tenants, it's like, um, you know, if the retail is struggling and then now you have this decision where it's going to possibly, um, you know, hurt these tenants even more. And I don't know, it's curious, like if it will be like a boom for the landlords who boom for the landlords who were, um, you know, having a hard time through COVID. I think, I think one of the more interesting, not to get too into the legal weeds, but one of the more interesting, like factual um scenarios is going to be those guarantors who had good guy guarantees mm-hmm. which allows a tenant to give certain amount of notice before leaving and then they're forgiven from liability those tenants who maybe would have exercised good guy notice during that period of time but the law dropped so they said okay why am i going to spend 20, 40, 50, $100,000 to exercise my guy notice, I'm, I'm not liable anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave. You might have even had attorneys advising them of that. I don't know. Um, and now suddenly they might be facing a, a multi-million dollar lawsuit. So um, that to me is going to be an interesting question of reliance. And uh, I'm sure you know, that's, that scenario is going to play out many times over the course of the next few months and years. Yeah. No, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know, this is, I guess, um, akin to the commercial uh, protections, but like the eviction moratorium for residential tenants. And so many people thought like this would extend forever and I don't have to pay ever. And now we're seeing those cases start to play out in housing court because all of the protections have been revoked. So it's sort of like this buildup where, you know, you can't escape the law forever. Yeah, right. And it's interesting. People, e- even people just essentially acting in compliance, acting in reliance on the laws they understood it to be and as it was, and essentially now looking back and maybe they weigh, I guess Lee, Lee's, hypo- Lee's um, hypothetical scenario is a, is a tricky one because people are going to look back and landlords are telling them, you didn't give me notice in time to vacate, you, you've waived certain rights. And the tenants are going to and the guarantors are going to say, well, we did it in reliance on the law as it was. Mm-hmm. Who kind of prevails in that scenario is going to be, we predict another another interesting chapter in the whole saga. Mm, absolutely. Your, your, your concern about retail, I think, there's another, um, there's another piece to that, which is, I think, many retail operators, small businesses, restaurants, small shops, they, they avail themselves of that law. They closed up shop. They left. They probably went and started something else because they were able to get a more favorable lease somewhere else. There were a number of government programs allowed them to kind of restart 
Mm-hmm. Now you might have these proprietors in new space uh, suddenly with kind of their 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 history chasing them. You know, they get a new lawsuit for something they thought was in the past. It could have an impact on those businesses that were able to emerge from this and restart. So just kind of an interesting another layer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the other thing, this is sort of tangential, but I was reading in the Times earlier this uh, year about how those owners who were able to sort of like pick up and like when rents were really low and some of these spaces like move and like restart and be fine, like they're getting hit by inflation too. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of problems coming down the pike, I guess. Well, um, this was great. I mean, these are topics that are not going away. So I'm guessing that we're, we're probably going to ask you to come back on uh, in the near future to, to update us on what's going on uh, as things evolve. So hopefully um, uh, Brad's Inside Baseball segment didn't turn didn't <laughs> you off from doing that. No, not at all. I think I learned a lot too. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Have a nice week. Yeah, you guys too. Uh, if people want to follow you, uh, want to get your stories, want to hear about you, are there uh, where should they go? Do you have a social media platform that they can follow? Yeah, um, I should be more active on Twitter than I am, but my Twitter is Susanna Cav. Hopefully, my name is in the uh, description, so I don't have to spell it. Um, you can find my articles on therealdeal.com. And then I have my own podcast that I'm going to plug, which is Deconstruct. And we drop new episodes every Monday. So check that out, too. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Appreciate it. Thank you.